So there are a couple things. So I always have some preliminaries. There are a couple things yesterday I thought, oh, I didn't quite say that fully enough for us to get the full picture. So I want to pick up on what I talked about last night briefly, which is what are some things you could do intentionally after you graduate? Um, if you're currently a Chi Alpha intern, would you be willing to stand for just a second? So we, we recognize we have interns here. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, guys. Um, who, who else has done the Chi Alpha internship? Would you stand? Okay. All right. <laughs> you did too. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so, so it's actually a pretty common thing. Um, there are, as I said last night, three internships currently um, in our area, with soon to be a fourth, so Western, Central, U of I, soon OSU. And um, basically what it means is you give a year after you graduate. It's about, a, you know, 10 months or a year if you count the summer. And there's a lot of training that goes into that, a lot of character formation, a lot of helping you discern your own future and calling. Um, some students do the internship because it's the next step before they do some kind of a other mission. Some are just exploring, should I go into a ministry or not? But that's kind of always a question that's being explored. And, and I would add, it's one of my hopes that we have at least one or two of our internships to say we're also helping students to prepare for something they might do in the marketplace where they're part of a church plant where they're actually actively in ministry and they just oriented their job toward yeah. that. So there's, there's lots of options. I'd love for you just to keep asking questions of your staff if that's of interest to you. I also wanted to say that <clears throat> these plans are not in place, but they're being worked on. But I hope to have numerous churches in our region that we are actually partnered with, where we know when you graduate in this kind of community you've experienced, where we mentor each other one-on-ones, small groups. We're trying to reach our neighbors. There's a lot of just like condensed life that we do together, trying to partner with churches that live life like that. So that when you have a chance to go out and you're saying, oh, I want to be a teacher, I'm, I'm going to be in a business or whatever, you could orient toward a place like that. So, you know, give it a year or two, but I hope that to develop a whole network places like that so that Chi Alpha is very... Uh, remaining very activated after this season itself across our region. So that's a standby moment. More info, but let's keep listening and waiting, and um, your staff will probably start talking about those things in coming months once we get our network going. All right, <clears throat> I decided I had time to ask, I'm sorry, answer one question today, and answered a few more privately, but it's just a matter of time because uh, I want to give opportunity for us to speak to each other when we start sharing scriptures later. Um, this question was in 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul the Apostle talks about becoming all things to all people. Um, let me just read it for you, 1 Corinthians 9.20. It says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. He's talking about the Jews there. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, 
now he's talking about the Gentiles, the whole rest of the world, I became like one not under the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that all, by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. Okay, so the question was, how do we become all things to all people while still retaining the fact that we are people of truth? There's still a way of life that we need to, to walk with God. We can't just adapt everything in our life to some particular culture, subculture, whatever. So how do we do that? And... <clears throat> I love, this is one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. I have become all things to all people so that by God's grace I may win some. I love that. To me, what it drives is a motivation to be a a person who understands the cultures, the values of people around me. I, I, I understand so that I'm able to adapt the words of Jesus so that it makes sense to somebody in that culture. And so by becoming something in that culture, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to just understand. You can't speak to somebody who doesn't understand what you're saying. So number one, I say it, it really is about understanding. Secondly, <clears throat> I would say there's some aspects of at least trying to like wear some of the, the cultural clothing of people, so to speak. You know, so there's a certain way you might dress when you're a chaplain for a football team, and there's a certain way you might dress when you're, say, a chaplain in the army. So you're going to adopt some of the, literally, just some of the garb, some of the look, some of the mannerisms, just so that you don't stand out, and the, and the way that you stand out isn't just like a, something that gets in the way of communicating. You don't want to stand out so much that you are in the way of the message. So I th- think, and I think it's more than garbs. You know, it's manners of speech, etc. Um, maybe some hobbies. You know, you adopt some hobbies to fit the people group. So uh, you know, obviously, I do the kinds of things in my life that are more fitting to a college student audience than if I were a church pastor. And there, you know, pastors do a lot of things with people in their congregation. But I tend to disorient my life toward what what is it that I can do to hang out with students. Um, You own a spike ball set, correct? Right? Not only because you love it, but also you can do it with students. Right? So I'm talking to Tim here. There's lots of examples like that where we adopt things in the culture because we're just trying to make a bridge, a relational bridge, and not be in the way of the message. I do find that most of us cross the gaps between different subcultures on our campus and in our friend group. And so the interesting thing is I don't think you can embed yourself so deeply in one particular subculture that you become, uh, it turns out that you're in the way of communicating the message to other friends. So I tend to be a person that is um, aiming at being all things to all people at the same time, if that makes sense. Trying to find an average. (laughs) I try to find some averages that make it easy for me to engage with a student who is an athlete and engage with a student who's a music major and engage with a student who's going into education. So <clears throat> some, some extremes in what you may adopt in a culture may actually get in the way as well. Anyway, those are my thoughts. 
What I love in the end is the passion is to share the good news of Jesus. That is the passion and the driving force for anything that we do in life, and that's what Paul is saying here. Okay, a couple more preliminaries. So, um, I, Nancy, let's put this up on the screen. I want to describe an opportunity that I would be interested in seeing if there's one or two or three or four students who might consider. So, <clears throat> you don't know what this means yet. Um, we are a part of a network of churches that includes youth groups, so high school youth groups. And so there's a youth director who does kind of what I do for coordinating our, our Kaiafa ministries, but there's a youth director that coordinates our youth groups. And they do a youth conference every fall. And I was just asked a couple days ago, would there ever be any Kaiafa students that would just show up and hang out with these youth for a single day because they do something called youth conference? One of them is in Pasco next weekend. The other one is in Renton the weekend after that. They're reasonably close to uh, either Central or to Bellevue. And in fact, I'm hoping to have some Kaiafa staff at these events because the Kaiafa staff will be um, meeting students and giving them information about Kaiafa. What we're looking for here is for if there's a Kaiafa student or two that just wants to show up and hang out with the students that day and serve behind the scenes. Um, our network is providing money for that, so it would cover more than your travel. So there's a meal, first of all, it's a lunch time, they'll provide the meal, but secondly, I think it's a hundred bucks for um, anyone from Central, or any, actually anyone going to Pasco, <clears throat> and it's 75 bucks for anyone going to Renton. And so they'll, they'll give you money just to come and hang out with students and serve behind the scenes. If you'd be interested in doing that, please just let me know. You might want to take just a quick screenshot in case you're interested, and then you can think about it, let me know later and I'll let our network know, and most likely you could be a part of a carpool that goes down probably with some staff from your campus or with another student. Okay, so there's an opportunity. And finally, I have written some things down that I think are just general principles about success in life I want to give to you before we read Jonah. Okay? Success in life depends on four things. Actually, I would put five here. <clears throat> I'm going to put a fifth one. And the fifth one really goes back to our God times in the last couple days. So starting with number zero, so I'm going to go zero through four, which makes five. Get it? I just don't want to get messed up on my notes. So the zero is the last one. It's the first one. Um, having an abiding time with Jesus on a very consistent basis it's something that resets your heart. We need that. that. That book, The Divine Mentor, is just so good at helping you know how to structure some time like that. But at the very least, I'd say, get out the Bible every day for 30 minutes. And just sit there, read something, and meditate on it. Kind of work your way through different things in the Bible that speak truth into your life. Number two, actually number one, because that was number zero. Number one is having a positive posture. If you see every moment in your life, and I mean every moment, as a learning opportunity, you will go far. If you see everything in your life, every moment as a challenge, as something to just endure and get through, you will, you will not go as far. In fact, you will struggle. Your attitude determines a lot about where you can go in life and 
if you embrace the wisdom and love around you rather than being quick to judge or reject, you will go far. It's all about the positive mindset. I've got to take initiative and see things in a positive way. Taking initiative to see things in a positive way means you are able, enabling yourself with God's help to be free from all sorts of traps of thinking and traps of um, ways of living. Number two, working steadily is also a key to success in life. There's actually no shortcut for becoming a fruitful, load-bearing tree than just steady growth through all the seasons. There's no shortcut. Modern culture gives us an impression that you can get famous or earn a lot of money or gain skills really quickly. And it just seems like that's the constant theme in every single reel I see on Facebook now and all the short little things on TikTok. It's like, you can do these things quickly. We can't. Most of those things we can't. A few things we can hack in life, but for the most part, the growth that we need to become a load-bearing, fruit-bearing tree takes time. And that requires steady work. Accept all work. Accept all challenge in your life. Even the things that you don't want to do. Like Jesus being tested in the wilderness, character grows when you're tested. Number three, having structures in your life that keep you moving forward. The interesting thing about human beings is without structures, all of your best dreams and desires will never see fruition. A structure is anything that just puts little requirements in your life. For example, um, a, a class meets at 9 a.m. That's a structure, five days a week. The fact that you have to show up at 9 a.m. forces you to do some work right beforehand to be ready for the class. The structure forces you, it motivates you to get some things done. We don't t typically like a lot of structure, but actually structure is really good for us because it gives us these little moments where we've got to get something done. It forces you to do it. I have a music rehearsal tomorrow. I need to practice beforehand. Um, I have an assignment due. I have somebody I'm meeting one-on-one -on -one with, and we agreed that we would talk about this topic. Oh, I need to spend some moments thinking about that. Structure is just so good for us. We all need and thrive on structures. It's how we're wired. And number four, which technically is number five, if you've got the numbering scheme, okay? People in your life are what help you to grow. There's a reason why I challenge anyone in a core group or a Bible study or a small group, to fight to be there weekly. Even when life is busy, you have to fight to get there, even when life is busy, because good people are a lifeblood in your life. They, they keep me close to Jesus. Good people also press in to make sure that I'm doing well. There's strength in numbers and in accountability. Good people challenge my motives for the better. Okay, so one through five, success in life. We're going to read chapter four of Jonah today. And this begins with a story. Um, let's see. 
technically, what time was this scheduled to switch to worship? Somebody with a schedule? Wait, do I have one? No. Okay. Sorry, everyone. Okay, so can somebody just set an alarm for 9.50? And, and I think we started, uh, we went 10 minutes late, right? So someone set an alarm for 9.50 and I'll know and I'll add 10. Thank you. Thank you. This begins with a story. Again, this story is not in a stairwell. <laughs> I am a sophomore in high school. I'm 16 years old. Over the summer, I went on a mission trip with a church youth group down to Tijuana, Mexico. Now, that's just across the border from San Diego. If you've never been, Tijuana is a sprawling, million-person place with poor water and low sanitation and dirt roads filled with junk and broken glass and a million people. And we, as, as kids in the youth group, we spent time there finding wide spots in the street to do children's puppet shows and sing songs that we'd memorized in Spanish, little short songs, and um, have people come up and ask for prayer. And we had somebody who was a full-time missionary there who knew the language and all that. So, you know, the missionary would translate. And every night we'd have something where there was a bigger gathering. We'd do lots of games with the kids and the missionary would preach a message and there'd be an extended time to pray for people. We slept on hard concrete floors in a little mission building that they had found, chasing away the cockroaches and working hard to get used to the constant sounds and the smells in the city. There was, a, there was this other moment, side note, a girl my age that I had a crush on, and I remember one moment when we were forced to return to our building and climb up a hill, and I needed to grab her hand and help, help her up the hill, and I was quietly freaking out because I'd probably never touched a girl in my life before. Yeah. So, every night... After the, the big gathering when people would come forward with physical ailments and broken family challenges and they would ask for prayer in Spanish, of course, there was really nothing that we, my 16-year-old self and my friends, nothing that we could do except to pray for them in ways that they couldn't understand. Pray with all our might. God, help this person. A wave for the missionary to come over and <laughs> pray something in Spanish for them. And again, just along the side, pray, God, help this person. It was the first time I really prayed with passion. And it was also the first time I really prayed out loud. It was powerful to do so, though I didn't know what God was doing, and to see some answers to prayer. So when, when we returned from this trip, this was about a two-week trip, there were weeks to go left in our summer. I had weeks on end, you know, <laughs> of my summer with nothing to do. I came back to my home, my parents' house, my bedroom, the quiet, clean world that I had with these pleasant amusements. 
And, and I remember feeling so out of place. I remember crying. I, literally, I cried myself to sleep for days on end. That was all I could do with this feeling inside of me, all the cares of my life, and playing with friends and the good food that we had and daydreaming about being an airplane pilot and all the activities I enjoyed and considered my personal free time, all of that didn't make any sense in light of my experience with these kids in Tijuana. I couldn't take that experience and match it to my world. I was surrounded by people back in America with small concerns and, and what we call first world concerns, right? and worries, and I cried every night for those kids, for those people, and as a 16-year-old, of course, I could do nothing to, to help them in my current life, you know, until I finished school and kind of got out into adulthood, and then maybe, maybe I could do something. I couldn't go back right now. I was just in my world that made no sense and no connection to theirs. And so I find, my, find myself, found myself, pushed to prayer. And I was really pushed to start deleting some of the frivolous things in my life. Throughout the rest of high school, so I had my memories, I had two more years. I prayed on the walk in between classes almost every day. I walked from one building to another in my high school and I would pray. I'd pray in the spirit, I'd pray in tongues, I'd pray in English, I would just, I would just pray. I started doing that every day. And even though I was bullied occasionally in high school, um, sometimes walking between classes, and I had to walk around a building, and sometimes this kid would meet me and he'd tease me or hit me, um, I was actually just pushed further to prayer in those moments. Like it, my heart was different in that moment. I didn't feel victimized. I felt compassion. Uh, I didn't have the power to stop that thing from happening, but I had compassion. The experience in Mexico changed me for the better. I will not forget. And so if I could just use the analogy of Jonah right now, I felt like that experience in Mexico was a whale in my life, or a fish in my life that swallowed me up and caused me to, to make a change in how I saw the world. It was a moment that encircled me and would not let me go and forced me to cry out to God. So, I mean, I'm not saying that I was in sin, okay, before going to Mexico. So I'm taking this analogy a little bit broader with Jonah. I'm saying that I was simply adolescent. I was underdeveloped. I was unexposed to the world. And what the, the experience of that fish in Tijuana encircling me was to get me up and to give me some discipline and constructively start doing things that were outward in my life. It changed and recentered my priorities and my actions. So, how is the Lord recentering you this weekend, changing your priorities and your actions? Today, we're going to conclude with Jonah and see what God has to say about recentering our lives. And <clears throat> this is one of the most interesting chapters in the whole Bible, and I'm going to enjoy reading it with you. 
Jonah chapter 4. The title this morning is Shrink Not Back from That Which Seems Inconvenient, for it will be not so in the end, and God is good. Thank you. Shrink not back from that which seems inconvenient, for it will not be so in the end, and God is good. We need, we need an anchor verse uh, because it's going to come up in this passage. So I'm just going to read this anchor verse. Hold, hold this slide just for a second longer, Nancy. Um, I'm going to read the anchor verse, and then maybe when I'm halfway through, Nancy, you can pop up the verse. It comes from Exodus when God announces his name to Moses, the person leading Israel. God said this. He proclaimed his name, Yahweh. He passed in front of Moses, walked in front of Moses, proclaiming, I am the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands and forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet I do not leave the guilty unpunished. This is God making statements about himself and who he is. And that's going to come up in the story with Jonah. So if you turn to Jonah, we're actually going to go back one verse into the last verse of chapter 3. Okay, got that spot? 3 verse 10, and then we're going to read chapter 4. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. (laughs) What do you even say here? (laughs) If you thought shallow, whiny, I'm the victim perspectives were a 21st century thing, (laughs) it goes back to the 6th century B.C., Yeah. But the Lord replied, justly so, I think. Is it right for you to be angry? (laughs) Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he had made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Okay, so Jonah was waiting for the fire to come down. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it to grow up over Jonah to provide shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So again, this is is either a miraculous plant or Jonah sat there for six weeks while the plant grew up or this functions as a point of reference in a parable. You kind of pick your option, but... The point isn't about how to understand it as a parable or a real thing. The point is to think what is, what is being said here. So we're going to get to that. 
What we need to take note of is that Jonah was happy about God easing his discomfort. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Again, words fail me. What this does is expose Jonah's pettiness. I think his low level of grit his reliance on temporary comfort. It's, like, it's almost like God gave Jonah his desire to take a mental health day under the plant, and then God went about exposing the fact that it was actually just a problem with Jonah's unbalanced perspective. Today, I mean, today we use extreme language often, things like, I am exhausted, or this was the worst day ever, as if life was harder than it ever was. And it just turns out that people have been doing that as well for 2,500 years. So it's not unique. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So first, Jonah is angry about God relenting and saving the people. Now he's angry about God taking away the plant that God had provided to ease his temporary discomfort. Jonah says, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have great concern for the great city of Nineveh, the city of God, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left and many animals. And here's where the book of Jonah ends on a question, on a cliffhanger. So how are we to understand this story? Again, asking some questions here. Let's just be reminded that Jonah is just a foil or a mirror for us. It's almost like real life lessons are being played out like as if a movie is being projected onto Jonah. And we're watching that movie in order to draw lessons for us. What change of heart does God call us to embrace? So the fact that this question is hanging means what will Jonah do in response to God's concern for others? We don't see or hear or know what Jonah did in response to this. And that means the question is for us. In response to God saying your anger is misplaced and don't be so driven by your feelings, this is a teaser for us, the audience. So I, I will say two things about how we could understand this story. Number one, Personal comfort is not a thing worth striving for. In, in the ancient world, as in the life of most wise people, you learn to walk out the steps that the Lord appoints for you. And you stay faithful to those steps, regardless of how you feel about them. 
it's, it's like being a parent or it's like being a teacher. Um, you have this class to teach. You have these children's to, children's to raise. Does it matter how you feel day to day? Not so much because what's needed in the lives of, of those people growing up is your faithfulness, your consistency. Will you walk it through? And that is what's needed in our walk with God. Personal comfort and I might just say there's, there's obviously a hundred things that fit into the category of personal comfort, distractions of almost any kind, has become an idol today in our society. It is the thing we're striving for. Comforts are good, but, and, and I would I say that meaningfully, comforts are good, but they also have side effects. The flip side of the coin for the Thousands of dollars given out for free in the pandemic, for example. So most of us or our families at least received money, thousands of dollars during the, the lockdown year. The flip side of it is that it unmotivated people to look for work. Okay, there, I mean, there was a, a flip side to that that has played out for a couple years now in our society, a tendency to move away from work rather than towards it. I'm not saying that the handouts were bad necessarily. I just want us to understand that comfort has side effect. Thank you very much, Melissa. With the increase in all the safety nets today, the side effect is that people are less resilient. Contrast that with the generations before us, even before my generation. So I'm Generation X. I don't know if you know. They name generations, right? So I'm Generation X, and I think a lot of you might be Gen Z or coming up on whatever's after that. The generations before that, in contrast, lived through a decade of something called the Great Depression, something called a world war, a couple world wars, and they had to scrap and labor and work for years to gain ownership of things like homes and cars and to provide food for their kids and to gain skills for life. They had to work hard for that. My grandfather would work for a year and then go to college for a year and then go back to work again and then go back to college. He did that for eight years to get through a four-year degree because there were no loans in the 1930s. As a result, that older generation, maybe your grandparents and great-great-grandparents, have tremendous resilience, tremendous. A, a, get to it, I can fix it kind of an attitude that makes them immune to the sort of challenges that, that feel overwhelming for us at times. And they are full of generosity. So I, I think there's a, a turn that, again, in chapter 4 here that God calls Jonah to. He calls him to a turn. Um, let me just read this little story from the Gospels in Mark chapter 6. I, I teased it yesterday because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. So Jesus and his disciples, Jesus said to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So Jesus and his disciples went away by themselves in a boat. So they crossed the lake. They're really trying to get away. All right. To a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns around the lake and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. 
because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And of course, the story right after that, and this happens in several Gospels, is that there's also the feeding of 5,000 people with few fish and few loaves. So Jesus also provides. Where does personal comfort play out in Jesus' life? Well, I, I mean, the way I see it, he takes a rest when he can. And there are times when Jesus gets additional rest by going away early in the morning up onto a mountain before people wake up. I mean, he takes a rest when he can, tries to help his disciples take a rest, and that's good, but there's a balance because we see that he's also ruled by a greater passion. He's ruled by a greater passion that turns into compassion for the people and causes him to lay his life down for people around him, like a parent would for a child. God's love extends to thousands. His forgiveness to the entire world. He is compassionate and gracious and kind. He is the great provider. And in contrast, too often we are stuck, stuck, surrounded by a more frivolous world, complaining about things that are probably medium hard and talking about them as if they are very hard. When we do that, we miss the point. And we also miss the tremendous fullness of life that comes from having some real grit and pouring out our lives in worship to Jesus and to people around us. So... Um, I want to provide some balance here. So this is kind of that we recognize that our society doesn't train as well <laughs> at times to have some resilience and to have a greater passion, right? But there are some balances. So I want to, uh, to describe a balance point for us. Please understand this very carefully with, with some nuance. There are actually many things in life that are difficult. In fact, I think science in recent decades has helped us to identify many things that we didn't understand before. Learning disorders, neurological problems, real challenges, medical challenges, broken family relationships and how they affect your life. Like the, These things cannot be minimized. I'm not going to try to minimize them, and I hope you don't hear me saying that in all we've talked about so far. Those are very real. God loves us in, this, in these moments in our life. And he actually wants to help. Um, I deal with quite a number of things myself. I have some mild Tourette's that I've dealt with throughout my life, but people are very gracious. I deal with uh, loose ligaments in my knees that limit active movements, especially all the fun things that I used to like to do with students, basketball and volleyball. Uh, even spike ball's hard for me. I have to be careful about my knees. Uh, I have a digestive issue where food gets stuck in my esophagus almost daily. I have to work to get food to move through my body. I feel like I look average. Um, I feel average about myself. Um, I'm often short on sleep because there's people on my mind. Often. What do I do? God cares about those things. He loves me in those moments, those hardships. Like He loved my grandparents and your great-grandparents. He loved them in their hardships. What do I do? I constantly place my insecurity and my weakness in the back seat. 
I refuse a victim mindset. I rather love the image of being surrounded by people at the end of my life who are thankful that I kept a positive spirit in those moments, that I kept initiative in those moments, that I kept working toward the good in those moments, and I didn't shrink back. Even if I served Jesus because of simple acts of service, simple acts because that's what I could conjure up in, in extreme moments of weakness, even then, I know that there will be people later that say, thank you. And Jesus will say, job well done, and I love you. As we learn from Jonah, all of the needs in our life are provided for by God anyway. So it doesn't do any good to shrink back into what ends up being false security in our lives at times. So the balance point is this. Those weaknesses and challenges and painful things that we have experienced in different ways can either force you into an ever deeper hole or they can force you into servant-hearted work and a learning attitude and a God-centered can-do spirit. The same circumstance can be treated in different ways. I hope you hear what's being said there. It's not your circumstance that defines you. It's what God enables you to do with it. The Apostle Paul lived one of the hardest lives. And he says in Philippians chapter 4, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty also. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The secret is this, I can do all these things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. So again, it's not your circumstance that defines you. It's what God enables you to do with it. You can either shrink back into a deeper hole or you can move forward by faith into a servant-hearted, learning work attitude in your life. Now some of you know that I love off-trail hiking. I've got some photos here. Here's uh, one of my, that's me, it was one of my favorite mountains. I've probably been there like 12, 15 times with students pretty much every time. Um, here's another one of some of the guys I went with probably about 10 years ago. Uh, some of you who attend our church at New Life know Nate Thomas on the, in the middle right there. Um, the next photo, here's another group, another group of students and then I think we went two years ago, so the next shot is us trying to descend. Uh, oh, well, that's on our way up, and then this is up at the top. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the back side of it is more like a 45, so you scramble up. It's not like we were actually climbing a cliff. But I love us hiking up to this and saying, that is not possible. It looks like it is actually a vertical cliff on one side. And then we literally go up a 45 degree angle with hands and feet. It's called a scramble up the backside. And that in itself feels like it makes you nervous even though it's actually pretty safe, but you just you don't feel that way, especially when you get to the top. I love seeing us fight through the challenge and being able to say, you thought you couldn't do this when you saw this mountain. And here we are today, just a couple hours later, and it wasn't as bad as you thought. 
and you got through it, and it was exhilarating. It is, it is nothing short of exhilarating. So a couple guys have been here. And now you want to do it again. <laughs> what challenge can we embrace that keeps us in line with God's heart for our lives, that will cause us to grow? What can I embrace today? I'll make two points, and then we're going to move into our scripture time. Let me just prep this scripture time. If there's a scripture, you say, I read this this weekend, or this popped up in my mind because I've read others in the past. This would be encouraging for somebody to hear. When we get to that moment, just, just stand and read that verse. You know, at most, read a paragraph. Don't read a whole page because we love a bunch of us to share. And th- that would be a great time for all the rest of us as people are sharing, just to write down the verse reference, to go back to it later, because there's so many things that will speak to our hearts. And that one more than this one, I'm going to write down. I write down them both, just in case they're both useful later. But so there's the prep. What can I embrace today? Two directions we need to take. Number one, it, it is time to see ourselves as strong in Christ and not unnecessarily weak. Is that alarm for me? Yeah. All right. What time is it? Thank you. When we see ourselves as unnecessarily weak, it leads to complaint. It leads to the victim mindset that, that short circuits our growth. You can do it. I can do Like Paul said, I can do all these things in Christ who strengthens me. I like to tell people, never complain about how hard your day is. There's always somebody who's had a worse day. Right? I can't tell you how many times I'm listening to someone bemoan how little sleep they had, or the stress of finding a job, or this or that, and and I bite my lip because I had a much worse night. I I choose not to say anything out of principle. It's, It's best to have compassion in the moment. But also, we need to shift away from... What do I have to worry or be anxious about today and shift our mindset to say, how is God going to use me in this circumstance? There are other ways through your trouble. They always involve making an attitude adjustment toward the positive, toward taking initiative, toward empowerment. You know, Jonah took that one mini step in chapter 3, but God's calling him to take more steps. What are the steps you can take? Number two, it's also time to lay our plans down at Jesus' feet. Lay down our careers, our safety nets, and our preferred comforts. There's nothing more powerful than saying, Jesus, this is yours. What will you do with it? Okay, I actually have a third third point. It comes with a couple pictures before the worship team will come up, so hang on. Um, The third point is I would embrace... The metaphor of the tree. Now we, we read about that. It, technically, if you read John 15 yesterday morning, it's about more like a grapevine. But the, kind of the Western image in my mind is I understand trees. Uh, I understand fruit trees, actually. Here's a tree that sits in our front yard. Oh, I forgot to get the picture of the broad tree. But it's right next to where our car parks. This is like, I don't know, ten, I, I went underneath the tree last month and took a picture up. This is about 10% as you work your way around. 
Okay, this is a nectarine tree. It bears fruit in an absolutely phenomenal way. And when it's loaded, all the branches stand down like this. It's, it's about like 15 feet wide when, when it's loaded. When it started out, we planted it like eight or nine years ago, probably. Um, it was a thin little tree with branches that stuck straight up. Every year, I've worked to prune shoots off of this tree. Okay, you prune every shoot that tries to go up so that all the new shoots go out and sideways and they fill out horizontally. That's just standard fruit tree pruning strategy. Any shoot that moves in the wrong direction, you prune in order to allow shoots that move in the right direction to stay. And so it has gotten broader, and added, as it has gotten broader, it has carried more fruit. This year, I estimate that our tree carried about 600 nectarines. This is just one corner. And then in the next photo, you can see I have to, um, I have to put ropes around branches to, in order for them all to sag on each other's weight when, when it's fully loaded. It said in John 15, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, the Father prunes, so that it may be even more fruitful. That's a powerful statement. We, we have to allow God to help us to grow new disciplines in our life and prune off old, old habits and whatever gets in the way so that our new disciplines carry more fruit. Will you allow Jesus to prune in your life so that it can grow better and stronger? This is just, it's so fun giving away all of this fruit. Yeah. What? Where was my fruit? Well, I, you didn't ask. <laughs> you got to come in, in late August, early September. And we're going to have boxes of nectarines. They are, and they're also, I mean, if you've ever bought a nectarine in the store, I'm really sorry. <laughs> because they have some nice soft flavor, and these have the most poignant, sharp flavor you've ever had in your life. They're the best. Today is an invitation to move from a, a narrow tree with some dead branches and wilted leaves to strong leaves and a broad spread moves from, from death to life by turning and embracing God and dying to misaligned ways. God is calling us to change our campus and to align our lives toward a strategic mission field, people around us, and also just for us personally to enjoy his favor and his love every day. The title again, let's just remind ourselves, shrink back not from that which seems inconvenient or impossible or looks like a precipice for it will not be so in the end. And God is good. I'm just going to leave it with that here today. If you want to pray this prayer at some point this week, I'm going to put a prayer up on the screen. You can take a snapshot of it. These are just statements to make in prayer to God. Uh, these are for you, Jesus, to talk about.